You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So if you would just pause with me for a moment, I want to ask the Lord's blessing on the word before I begin to comment on it. Father, thank you for your word. And God, thank you for Luke and his, um, uh, his, his endeavor to uh, record a, um, a, a true account of, of, of what happened when Jesus walked the earth so that we could be certain and sure of the truth of our faith and and of what Jesus came to do. And so, God, we just start by saying thank you for that and just acknowledging um, your great sovereign power in in just preserving uh, this text, this passage, and this story uh, for so many years so that we could stand here tonight and study it and then hear from you. Uh, And then we just ask, Lord God, that your spirit would just be powerfully present among us um, and that you would help me as I communicate. God, I pray that you would um, I pray that you would just kind of capture the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth and that and that what I preach this evening would be acceptable in your sight. Lord God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Help us to see you that way. And Lord, I just pray that as I preach this text that you would turn my heart and our hearts towards this grand picture of you as our king. Lord, I just pray that the the impulse that would arise out of each of us would be that of worship of you. So God, I pray those things and believe that you will do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Philip Ryken in his commentary on this passage says, it says that Jesus' royal entrance into Jerusalem was a momentary triumph before an impending tragedy. It was a triumph that disclosed his true identity and invited people to acknowledge him as their king. Ryken says that soon Jesus would suffer the humiliation of his crucifixion. But first, God wanted people to see who he really was. 
and for a few moments at least to give him something like the majesty that he deserved. As he watched the regal procession that that Christians usually call Palm Sunday, we see the king claiming his property, displaying his humility, and receiving some of his glory. And then as we watch, we should ask ourselves this question. Here's like the big question. Am, Am I ready to give King Jesus the wealth and the worship that he royally deserves? Am I ready to give King Jesus the wealth and the worship that he actually deserves? In other words, this passage really is all about worshiping the king. It's all about coming and worshiping Jesus as we uh, see him as the one who has been seeking to save our souls since before the foundations of the very world. It's all about Jesus and how his followers, us, if you're here and you claim to trust and believe, believe in Jesus. It's really about him being our king, riding into the center of our lives, and then our, not necessarily just response, but our life of worship to him because we have captured this picture of Jesus as the king. And in this passage specifically, we see some real specific personal applications what it looks like to worship him by giving him our possessions, by lifting our voices in praise of him. Um, And and in the midst of doing so, like shattering the stony silence of of the pride-filled world around us, really. As we catch this picture, it's, it's really an invitation for each of us to come into the presence of the king and to worship him with everything we have, with our entire lives. Notice how Jesus' followers do this. Notice how they worship him in our passage by giving their wealth and their possessions to him. Verses 28 through 36, Luke Luke tells us that after Jesus spoke about the importance of the investment of the gospel, which is what we studied last week, and after he challenged his followers to basically be faithful investors of that gospel that had been invested of them, not to hide it, not to reject it, but to instead invest, reinvest what had been invested in them. After he talks about these things, Luke tells us that he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. We've been hearing this phrase over and over and over again, right? Jesus has turned his face, has set his face. He is, he is, uh, he's set towards Jerusalem. Nothing is going to change his course of action or his travel plans or his journey. He's headed there and he's headed there towards certain death, right? That's where he's headed. Once again, you and I, when we take trips, we want to take trips to fun places like worlds of fun or oceans of fun, right? Or, Or to a concert. But Jesus, his trip was from a perfect place called heaven to the sin-soaked place called earth where you and I live. And his journey here on earth was towards Jerusalem where he would die horrendously. That's the picture. He's headed towards Jerusalem. And as he drew near, Luke tells us that he sent two of his disciples with these instructions, right? He sent them with instructions on ahead. He says, go into the village ahead of you. Find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it back. And if anyone asks, why are you untying it? Then you should say this, the Lord has need of it. And so those two disciples did exactly what Jesus said. Immediately, when Jesus instructed them to do it, they left. And I think there's a, there's a telling piece 
grace in this when it comes to worship, when it comes to the worship of our Savior and King. If you claim the name of Christ, then your worship is in, in, in all actuality, your worship is proven by your obedience to the Word of God. Your worship is proven by your obedience and your willingness to be obedient to the word of God, especially the words of Jesus throughout the scriptures. So, so these two disciples, they, they did exactly what Jesus instructed. They were obedient and they went on ahead to that little town. And when they returned with the colt, then Luke tells us that Jesus' disciples threw their cloaks on that colt. I mean, you catch this picture, right? Two disciples run into town that basically steal this donkey and bring it back, and they throw their cloaks up on that donkey so that Jesus can sit on. They throw their cloaks on the colt, and then they picked up Jesus and they set him on the donkey. Kind of like, like what happens at the end of a football game when, when a football team wins a massive game. Kind of like yesterday, who watched the Husker game yesterday? Okay, well, I listened to it, I guess, so there's like a couple of, it was good, yo. Like, it was really good. Okay, last 30 seconds of the game was, un I about went off the road. It was so good. I, I, I mean, my impulse was just like to yell, scream, and like get up and do the touchdown dance that my wife and our kids like to do. And, uh, and so I, I had to pull off the road. It was that good. And what happens at the end of a game when something massive like that has happened? A lot of times the players will pick up their coach and place him on their shoulders, right? Right? It's, it's a sign of honor to do this. And so that's basically what the disciples have done with Jesus. They've thrown their cloaks over this donkey and then picked him up and sat him on it. And what this is, is it's a picture of King Jesus. It's a picture of him being worshipped by his followers to the extent that they were willingly and sacrificially giving their wealth and their possessions to him as he makes his way to the cross to die willingly and sacrificially as a ransom and a payment for our sin. It's a picture of worship. What, what drives and motivates the heart of worship is when you and I catch a clearer, more biblical, more robust, gospel-centered picture of Jesus as our king. This is why they did this. I like the question for, for you and I to ask as we study through this passage is, is like, are we worshiping Jesus by giving our wealth and our possessions to him? Like, is that part of the way that you worship Jesus? I mean, the reality is that the authenticity of our worship really is rooted in the activity of our hearts. Catch that. Think about that for a minute. The authenticity of your worship is rooted in the activity of your heart, which then flows out into the desires and the thinking and the behavior of your life. So the authenticity of your worship of Jesus is rooted in the activity of your heart, which then flows out into all the thinking patterns, all the behavior patterns of your life. And the owners of this cult and the owners of the cloaks in, in this passage 
prove the authenticity of their worship of their king by their willingness to give their wealth and their possessions away. And you think about these people, right? If these people had just thought, hey, that's my only cult. That's my only donkey. That's my only coat. I don't have another coat. Like somebody else with more coats or somebody else with more donkeys can, can give their possessions or their wealth away. Or, or maybe I'll give that donkey or maybe I'll give that coat another time, but not, but not this time, right? I got other things I want to do with that rather than give it to Jesus right now. What, what, what if they had thought that? If they had thought that, then their worship of Jesus would not have been authentic. If these people had desired to basically just kind of like prop up their image of value in the world instead of willingly and sacrificially giving their wealth and their possessions in authentic worship of Jesus, then, then they would have kept their cult, they would have kept their jackets so that they could feel like they were more valuable or like they finally had carved out this space with the in crowd maybe that they were trying to get in with. I mean, you imagine these people in this passage. They weren't super wealthy, most likely. Most people in the Palestinian area were pretty poor. To have a donkey and to have a colt would be very similar to you and I just owning a single car. Okay? Um, to have a coat on your back um, um, was not a sign of, um, of over-the-top wealth. It was a sign of, of just kind of like basically barely getting by, right? These people that are in this passage, I think sometimes we see them as being much different than we are in terms of wealth. And the reality is I don't think these people had much to begin with. And I think the home that these disciples went to had one donkey tied out front, one car parked in the driveway. And when these disciples came, they were like, hey, Jesus needs your car. These people's response immediately and obediently was, hey, he can have it. He can have it. I, I, he needs it more than I do. The interesting thing is about Jesus, you think about this, like, like Jesus actually owns everything, right? If what the scriptures say about Jesus is true, that everything was created by him and through him and for him, then when, what he's really asking for is something that he already owns in the first place. It's really a picture of stewardship at the end of the day, right? Like what you and I have, we don't actually own. It's like it's been loaned to us. We've borrowed it. But the problem is, is that we oftentimes think that we own it and that God doesn't own it. And so then, and so then what we do is we prostitute the things that we have and we hope that those things will bring us satisfaction and joy. We do this with inanimate objects and we do this with people as well, right? That's called idolatry. It's just a great picture in this passage that we see of these people being willing to give what they had immediately and sacrificially. Like when we think unbiblically about our wealth and our possessions, then we don't see our wealth and our possessions as a means of worshiping Jesus authentically. But instead, what we want to do is we, we wind up cleaning tightly to what we have. And we look to what we cling to to bring us that satisfaction that I spoke of a little bit ago. And we cling to those things to bring us satisfaction, wholeness, worth, value. In essence, when we refuse to worship Jesus with our wealth and our possessions, then what we wind up doing is we wind up worshiping our wealth and our possessions instead. That's what we wind up doing. 
ask yourself this question, like what does your thinking and your desires and your behavior say about the authenticity of your worship? Are you authentic in your worship of the king? I think about this picture of King Jesus again. Like he came from heaven. He had a pretty comfy place to stay, right? He didn't need to come here. He didn't, didn't need you or I or anything on this earth, but he came here to give himself for you and for me. Our response oftentimes is to worry more about the things that we have or do not have or the things we wish we did have rather than recognizing all that we actually have in Christ himself and then letting that motivate us to worship him as our suffering king. It's the big picture of this passage. So what does your thinking and your desires and your behavior say about the authenticity of your worship of Jesus? Do you think that your wealth and your possessions are merely yours to do whatever you want to do instead of thinking that the wealth and possessions you have actually belong to God and that you are a steward of them to manage them for the furtherance of the gospel and the kingdom of God? Like, how do you view your wealth and your possessions? How do you manage them? Do you find yourself dreaming about the next financial expenditure that you might make? Or, or, or find yourself dreaming about the next purchase that you might make to fill the void of feeling left out or lonely or worthless? Do you use your wealth and your possessions to strengthen the ministry of the gospel through the local church and other ministries? Like, are you worshiping Jesus by giving your wealth and your possessions to him? That's application number one. I mean, the reality of the scriptures is that if we don't apply this to our, to our hearts and our lives and, and then come away from that with some sort of challenge and changed behavior, then, then we, are, we are no different than the stiff-necked generation that Moses was trying to lead, Right? Like the people that Moses led in the Old Testament, and, and you think about like the people that opposed him uh, and the people with their problems, right? And their opposition of him was really an opposition of God. The reason that he called them a stiff-necked generation is because they did not get it. They, 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 they didn't have ears to hear. They didn't have eyes to see. I don't want us to be there. Like, I want us to hear this word from the scriptures and then apply it to our lives so that there might actually be real change. And I'll be really honest with you. Like, I don't give a rip if this church is full of 60 people or if it's just 10. Like, if there's 10 people whose, whose, whose lives are actually being changed and the other 50 take off because their lives aren't being changed, I'm fine with that. Fine with that. Right? So the question for you and I is, 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 does your life actually give evidence to the authentic worship of Jesus as your king? Is he your king? Because listen, if he is your king, there will be evidence of authentic worship in your life. Second thing we should notice from this text is how Jesus' followers worship him not only with their wealth and their possessions, but they also worship him by lifting their voices in praise of him. 
verses 37 through 38, Luke tells us that as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Like, just stop right there. All the mighty works that they had seen. And if you're here and you, you claim to know Christ... Ask, ask yourself, like, what mighty works have you seen Jesus do that you've forgotten about? Because the reason that we grow complacent and cold is because we, we give in to forgetting about the great things that God has done in our lives. And complacency isn't just a funny word either. Complacency is sin, right? It's to get comfortable in a place of not trusting God. It's to move from, from the category of trusting and worshiping God as our king. It's to move from that journey of following him and pursuing him and being challenged and changed through worship of him, right, as he pursues us and as we lean into him. It's to be moved from that category of authentic, worshipful discipleship over to this category of, hey, I'm asleep and I don't care. And the gospel bores me. And Jesus doesn't do anything good for me. It's, it's a picture of moralism in our country right now. Like the big picture of moralism is if you can spit shine all the exterior and kind of do all the right things and make yourself look good in front of people while all along you're rotting away inside. That's what happens in moralism. And then what happens there is you're no longer trusting in Jesus and his work. And you're no longer being transformed and changed as a worshiper of the king. But you are complacent. You're, it's almost as though you're dead, right? And you're asleep. And what's happening deep down inside is you're, you're beginning to worship yourself or worship others. <coughs> and his disciples began to rejoice. And praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Like this picture right here is, is a picture that Luke is painting for us of Jesus on the back of a borrowed donkey, right? He's on the back of a borrowed donkey making his way down the slope of a mountain just outside of Jerusalem. And as he rides along slowly, his, his followers and his disciples are like tossing their, their coats up on the donkey for him. But then they're also like creating this red carpet entry for him as he comes into Jerusalem. That's really what they're doing. As they throw down their coats on the ground for that donkey to, to walk on that Jesus is riding on, it's as though they're creating a red carpet entry for him because he's the king of kings. Now you think of the pictures that, that maybe you've seen all over the news lately as, as our presidential candidates will come into town, right? And, and, and the big reception they will get as they come. The, the, this, this picture here that we're seeing in this passage, it, I think is one of the greatest events of all time. It's greater than any other famous person that came into town. And these people's response of worship to him was literally, literally to basically take their, their automobiles and give them to them, take their American Eagle jackets off and say, here you go, you can have it. And in fact, they were thrown on the ground because they didn't want the donkey to walk on the ground without having some sort of padding there. 
This is just a really interesting picture of what it looks like to sacrificially worship the Savior who came to sacrifice himself for you and I. So as they're, as they're doing this and as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, all the people that are like watching this and following him are singing this old song of worship is really what they're doing. It's an old hymn that you would find laced all throughout the Old Testament. And it was sung by these people as they were looking forward to the day that Christ would come as their king. They were hoping for something that was in the future that was not here yet. And in these moments, as they were singing this hymn, they were seeing it in the very presence of the king that they had sung about for thousands of years. Blessed is the king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Like, can you imagine the hype that was happening in this moment? If this was today, Facebook and Twitter would blow up, right? Our news feeds and our news channels would be exploding with the hype of what would be happening if Jesus just came walking down the street on a donkey. Can you imagine the joy in this place as these people who, who had suffered great persecution, who were, who were enduring great difficulty, who were struggling with a, a, a ton of hardship as they were struggling there? Jesus shows up on the scene. And they remembered all the great things that had been said about them, right? Right? He saved this wealthy gangster guy, Right? He, he had taken the blind guy from the side of the road and caused him to see again. He'd given him sight again. He had done amazing things. And the result of that was these people were worshiping him with everything they had. But specifically, they were, they were worshiping him by lifting their voices in praise of him. And the authenticity of our worship, we come back to the topic of authentic worship. The authenticity of our worship of Jesus is rooted in the activity of our hearts that becomes visible through the words of our mouths. The scriptures teach us that it is out of the abundance of our hearts that our mouths speak. Grumbling and complaining. Grumbling and complaining comes from the cancer of discontentment within our hearts. We don't make excuses for that. Grumbling and complaining comes from the cancer, discontent with our hearts. It's not an act of worship, right? Gossip and slander comes from the cancer of unforgiveness that is growing within our hearts. And again, we don't make excuses for that either, right? Like when my heart isn't hoping in the king or trusting in the work of the king or resting in the promises of the king, then what happens is the words of my mouth will be full of despair, full of anger, full of bitterness, full of envy. And the reason for that is because what, what, what I find for sure and what you'll find, I think, if you let the Holy Spirit do a good examination of your heart in these moments is that if your mouth has been full of despair or anger or bitterness or envy, it's because you were looking to broken things to give you hope or rest 
or wholeness. The reality with worship is that worship is a heart issue. It's a heart issue. The reason that people don't give their wealth and the reason that we struggle to give our possessions to the ministry of the gospel is because we actually struggle deep down inside, deep down inside of our hearts with actually worshiping the king. That's what we struggle with. We've placed our hope from deep within our hearts in things other than Jesus. And even though we try to blame shift by excusing our words while pointing light to other people's failures or, or maybe the lack of wealth or the lack of material possessions that we have, the reality is that the authenticity of our worship is rooted in the activity of our hearts and it's made visible through the words of our mouths. Disciples' hearts were full of joy. They were full of joy because of the awesome things that they had witnessed Jesus doing all throughout this gospel. And so, so as a result, they praised him loudly. And the question for all of us to wrestle with is like, are we worshiping Jesus by lifting our voices in praises of him? And listen, on one side of this is that you and I can definitely pay lip service to Jesus while hiding what's going on deep down inside. But the reality is, is at some point it will overflow. It will overflow. Do your words communicate bitterness or forgiveness? Do the words of your mouth communicate hope or despair? Are you, are you worshiping Jesus by lifting your voice in praise of him? And these people in this passage were, they were full of joy because they were in the presence of their king, their savior, their, their master, the one that they had hoped for for so long. The third thing that we should notice in this passage is how Jesus' followers, because of their praise, because of their worship of the king, what happens is they wind up disrupting the stony silence of, of the Pharisees with their worship, right? When you think of these Pharisees with their stone-cold dead hearts getting ticked off because Jesus' disciples wouldn't shut up. Luke tells us that some of the Pharisees in the crowd actually said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I always like to say that Jesus threw the first um, rock concert. The picture Luke paints for us here is this picture of religious people with these stone-cold hearts that refuse to worship Jesus as their king. I think of Pharisees in, in, in the audience. And they looked apart. The Pharisees looked apart better than anybody else did, right? There, there would be a lot of things that, that we would be excited about in a Pharisee's life. They did some really good things, really. But they, they were dead. They were dead. They refused to worship Jesus as their king. Jesus was often opposed by religious people who were either, A, jealous of him, angry at him, or plotting against him. And Jesus referred to these people as whitewashed tombs. Have you ever, have you ever had a quiet moment with Jesus where, where he pointed out that your heart was becoming like a whitewashed tomb? Can I just say that if you've never had that moment with the Lord, you should be afraid. Does that make sense? Like if, you, if you've never heard the Spirit speak to you about the hardness and the coldness of your heart, 
You should be afraid. Because the evidence of that is that your heart is dead. You follow me? And Jesus referred to these Pharisees as whitewashed tombs or the blind leading the blind. And these people thought they were all clean on the outside. But all along they reeked of the stench of death from within and they were, they were blind to their own sin. Absolutely blind to it. Things stunk really bad in their lives, but they had absolutely no clue. Even though King Jesus is standing right in front of them and pointing it out. These people actually preferred silence over exuberant worship because deep within the interiors of their hearts, they worshiped the fake images of themselves that they had constructed. There was no joy in their hearts. There was no joy in their hearts over who Jesus is and what Jesus was doing. There was no exuberance over being in the presence of the king with the rest of the king's people. There was no excitement bubbling out of their hearts because their savior king had finally come. There was only the presence of dead cold silence instead of personal, willing, and sacrificial worship of King Jesus. And and these religious hypocrites couldn't stand to see or to hear other people worshiping Jesus so they tried tried to silence this worship because their worship of Christ was disrupting the silence of their dead, cold, backstabbing hearts. These are the people that, that wound up physically, literally crucifying Jesus. Right? They would have been the heroes. They would have been the heroes to us to some extent had we not heard differently. Right? You think about being there. Think about being in that place. And the authenticity of our worship of Jesus is rooted in the activity of our hearts. Is there a point that I've been making all along tonight? The authenticity of our worship of Jesus is rooted where? It's rooted in our hearts, right? Authenticity of our worship of Jesus is rooted in the activity of our hearts where the affections of the world that have taken a hold of us get disrupted. Think about that picture. You think about the affections and the desires of the world around you as that gets its claws deep within your heart and, and like gets a hold of you. What happens is when your heart begins to come alive, when your heart begins to praise and worship God, what happens is, is, is it disrupts what has been happening in your heart up until that point. Life comes in where there was once death. Light comes in where there was once darkness. Peace comes in where there was once discontentment. Joy comes in where there was once bitterness. Forgiveness comes in where there was once unforgiveness. Gentleness comes in where there was once anger. Sonship comes in where there was once shame. Right? And what happens when when that type of battle starts to happen and when the spirit starts to win that deep within your heart, then then the silence of the pride that has gripped your heart for so tight for so long gets disrupted like an earthquake. Our hearts, but our hearts are constantly churning away. You think you think you think like like a computer? Hard drive? You ever ever put your ear next to a computer? Listen to the hard drive kind of churning? Maybe it's the motherboard. 
you can kind of hear that crackling going on inside the computer if you listen close. And your heart, my heart is always churning away. John Calvin said that, that our hearts are like idle factories, which means they never shut down. They're always working to create new images of worship. And the world around us is constantly churning away and laboring and working and warring against us, laboring to erect or build new idols of self-worship all around us. And honestly, the world around us and the sin within us does not appreciate being disrupted from that daily grind. Now, you start to take chunks at this. King Jesus starts to show up on the red carpet hallways of your heart. And there's going to be something in you that's going to want to fight against that. It's kind of the fight that happens deep within each of us. If that fight has ceased for you, then you have ceased to authentically worship Christ. So the encouragement here is to stay in the game, right? It's to stay in that. It's to let the Holy Spirit do some examination of where your heart is tonight as you hear this passage, as this picture of King Jesus gets painted for you and I, and as you, you do some examination, some soul work of, man, what, what's really been happening deep within my heart? What, what's really been churning away deep down inside of you? I say this to my kids all the time. Sometimes I'll ask my kids questions like, hey, where are you going tonight? Who are you going to be with? What time are you going to be back? And, uh, and a lot of times like, man, you just, you just don't trust us, do you? And I'm like, no, that's not the issue, really. I do trust you. I don't trust the sin inside of you. And I don't trust the Satan outside of you. My job as, 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 a, as a dad is to protect you and care for you, right? And it's the same job that Jesus has over us. Like my job as a pastor over you guys as a church is to shepherd and to care for a flock. Watch out for wolves. What do you do with wolves? You see a wolf in your sheep pen, what do you do with them? You shoot them. That's what, yeah, you shoot them. Um, what do you do with the sheep who's wounded? Care for them. Yeah, you care for them. So the whole, the whole work of pastoring and shepherding is similar to the work of parenting with children. And so I always say this with my kids, and so I'll say it with you guys, that it's, it's, it's not necessarily the you that I don't trust. It's, this, it's the sin that I know is still at work inside of each of us and the Satan that's outside of us that I don't trust. It's the sin inside of you, the Satan outside of you, and the world around you will always be working and seeking to silence the worship that our Creator is developing deep within you by the work of His Spirit through the message of the cross of Christ. That's the war. That's the war that's always going to be taking place. The question for you and I is, like, are you worshiping Jesus in such a way that, that you disrupt the activity of the dying world around you? When your sinful impulses from within you attempt to silence your worship of the king, do you resist in the power of the Spirit? Do you persevere in the power of the Spirit? Do you stand firm in the power of the Spirit when sin is seeking to disrupt that worship inside of you? Do you shout your love? Do you shout your love and worship of your king from the mountaintops of your heart? 
how engaged are you in, in this fight to disrupt the dying world around you with your worship of King Jesus? When I opened this message, I opened it by saying that this passage really is an invitation for us to come and worship the King of Kings. It's an invitation for us to come and worship the King of Kings with, with our wealth, our possessions, and our voices. But I've asked us a lot of questions, and really what it comes down to at the end of the day is, is this one single question. Are you living a life of worship to King Jesus? I want to turn your attention as I close this up and as our music team comes back up. I want to turn your attention to Romans chapter 12. Apostle Paul in, in Romans chapter 12 speaks of what it looks like to worship the king. It says this in verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? Picture of worship here is that we give our entire lives and everything about ourselves to Jesus as a sacrifice. What motivates us? Mercy. God's mercy. I appeal to you. I'm calling out to you, Paul says. And I'm calling out to you based upon the mercy of God. Remember God's mercy towards you. He preached to you the message of the gospel. You've heard this message that though you were a sinner and far away from God, even though that's where you were, by God's mercy, he sent his son here to walk this journey towards Jerusalem. And you and I have to grapple with that and wrestle with that and decide whether that mercy is true or not. And if you're in a place where you say, yeah, yeah, God's mercy is true. He sent his son to die on a cross. And what Paul says is if you believe that, then I'm appealing to you based upon God's mercy. I'm not appealing to you based upon legal I'm not appealing to you based upon it's just the right thing to do. I'm not appealing to you based upon you should do this because nobody else does. I'm appealing to you based upon God's mercy to give yourself, present your bodies, your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying based upon God's mercy, I'm appealing to you, I'm calling to you, I'm asking you, I'm exhorting you, I'm challenging you to give yourself to God as an act of worship. And if you go back to Luke, we see that giving of our wealth and giving of our possessions is an act of worship. We see that lifting our voices in praise of God, lifting our voices in God-honoring ways, this is an act of worship which flows out of our hearts. He doesn't just stop there, right? Paul, back in Romans, doesn't just stop there. He says, do not. First, he says something in the positive. Do this. I appeal to you to do this. 
And then, and then he comes back in the negative and he says, do not do this. So do this, worship God, but do not do this. It's as though he knows our struggle with worship here on earth is going to be based on a couple of things. Our struggle in worship is going to be based upon our being conformed to the world around us. You look, about, look at the world around us. I just spoke about this, right? Do not be conformed to it. And the world around you doesn't agree with what you're doing right now. The world around you does not agree with living your life in a biblically-centered, gospel-shaped way. The world around you will try to conform you in a different way, in a way that is hostile to the gospel. So Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. The opposite of being conformed is to be transformed. When you come to Christ and begin following him, you actually come to Jesus as someone who has always been conformed by the world. You've always been shaped by the world around you. But when you come to Christ, you are renewed. You're giving a new way of thinking, a new way of desiring, a new way of living. You're now transformed. The word transformed is changed. No longer the same as you used to be. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Has your mind been renewed? Do you look at old things in your life and say, man, that was sinful. I don't want to live that way anymore. If you don't have that testimony and that story, then you've got to start asking if you've actually met King Jesus and begun living a life of worship of him. To not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, being renewed. That by testing, so that when you get tested by the world outside of you, by the Satan that lurks around you, by the sin that still lives within you, when you get tested, you may discern or know the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You start asking yourself about your life and your habits, your feelings, your desires, your thoughts. Let me say it again. Start asking yourself questions about your thoughts, the way you think, what dominates your thinking. Start asking yourself questions about your desires, your feelings, your passions, what you long for, what you actually want. When Jesus comes to you and says, what do you want from me? What's the first thing that comes out of your mouth? Your thinking, your desires, and now your habits, the habits of your life, the way that you live, the things that you do with your life, the way that you spend your money, the way that you spend your time, the way that you spend your life behind your computer screen. The way that you live, what does it prove about the authenticity of your worship? Have you been renewed? Have you met Jesus? He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he demands our worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together. God, just ask that you would... Uh, Continue meeting us here over the next few moments as we engage in communion and prayer and worship together. Thank you for this message on what it means to, um, to worship you as the king. Thank you for this picture of you riding down, um, riding down that mountainside on that borrowed donkey as people laid their coats in front of you. And as they cried out, as the king of kings, blessed be the king. Help our hearts to come alive in authentic worship of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to come down to the front.
partake in communion together tonight, I'm gonna, I'm gonna serve the communion. And I'm gonna serve the communion on purpose, specifically for this reason. When you guys come to take communion, I want you to hear this. This is the body of Christ broken for you, and this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, then this meal is for you. If you're here and your life does not have the evidence of authentic worship of Christ, this meal is not for you. If you're here and you're not a believer, you don't haven't trusted in Christ to save you, I don't want you to take this meal because, because you basically would be blaspheming against God by doing so. That's a heavy thing. So I want, I want to say that out of protection, but I also want there to be an invitation here. Like Christ's body was broken for you and for me, for our sin, for our mess, for our mistakes. God's not looking for perfection in this place, but what God is looking for is real faith, which says, Jesus, I trust in you. I recognize my sin. I recognize my brokenness, recognize my mess. I recognize my bent towards worshiping myself and other things. And I need you to change me. I need you to forgive me. And if that's where your heart is and your heart turns there, that's, that's awesome. That, that's where you need to be. And you're welcome to, to come and to participate in communion with the rest of the family tonight. Uh, if that's you, if you're with us and you're not a believer, or you're in a place where you're struggling in your faith and you're not sure whether you're a believer or not, what I would encourage you to do is maybe come to the front and to receive some prayer. I think Eric will be here at the front here in about 10 seconds to pray with you if you have those needs. Uh, and so we'd like to pray with you. Um, and if you have any other needs, something happened in your family, something happened in your life where you need some prayer, I'd like to pray for you for that as well. So let's... Uh, Let's participate in communion together. Thanks for letting me preach. Love you guys. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.